Welcome to Grandma Magic, a podcast from the Grandmother Collective. We're a nonprofit organization that supports and advocates for a world where a grandmother's power is seen, cultivated, and activated for positive change. The Grandma Magic podcast is an opportunity to learn more about the unique positions that grandmothers, aunties, and other older women around the world can play in advancing positive social development by talking to and learning from grandmother changemakers. We hope this series inspires you, brings you joy, and helps you recognize the enduring magic and wisdom that comes from grandmothers everywhere. My name is Lindsay Farrell, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Kim Samuel. Kim is a leading voice on belonging and is the founder of the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. An educator and activist, Kim has organized four symposia on the overcoming social isolation and deepening social connectedness, and last year published the book On Belonging, Finding Connection in an Age of Isolation. In research, policy, and practice, Kim's work is focused on helping us understand that it is a human right to belong. I'm so delighted to connect with you today. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you very much. So, Kim, one of the questions that I just love to ask my podcast guests is something that I think gets to the heart of what grandmothers represent, which is as culture keepers, as holders of tradition. So can you tell us something that you do that is meaningful to you and why, some kind of ritual or tradition? For me, Lindsay, most meaningful rituals and traditions involve being in nature somewhere, which is where I love to be with my family and as a grandmother myself with my two-year-old granddaughter to introduce her to the ocean and all kinds of animals and beautiful creatures and plants and flowers. One of the other things I do that I might mention for people that don't have access to nature in that way is simply to walk around in the neighborhood of any new place that I visit. I'm a big walker. And this really helps me to connect with and better understand the broader community in a way that I don't think you can do if you just drive through somewhere or read about somewhere, but just to experience it and be kind of spontaneous and open to who you might meet or what might be on the menu at the local coffee shop and so forth. So Mm -hmm. I guess that would be my ritual. (laughs) Yeah, get yourself sort of grounded and oriented in any new place that you go. Right, exactly. Great. Okay, Kim, so can you share a little bit about your background? In particular, I want to know what led to the founding of a Center for Social Connectedness. It's about a two-decade story, a little bit more than two decades, starting in 1997 when my late father had a really serious brain injury. We still don't know what caused it. He was in a coma for three months. And he woke up finally, which felt like an absolute miracle to us. And when he woke up, he had a lot of disabilities. And he was 65. He had just turned 65. When it was time for him to go to the rehabilitation hospital, which the medical community quite rightly wants to happen as quickly as possible, He was told, no, there was not $1 available via insurance, which we did have, for him to get rehabilitation because they said he was in his, quote, sundown years, meaning that he'd reached the age of 65 and therefore was not considered 
worthy enough for rehabilitation and instead would pay for him to go and live out his days in a nursing home. It's not to say that there aren't good and bad, but that doesn't seem to me like a way to honor someone's right to choose and their right to live in community. So that more than anything was kind of point one, right? A giant wake up for me that that could happen. And then subsequently to that, he did go to rehabilitation. We were really fortunate that as a family that we could do that, but it made me so aware of how many thousands and thousands of people simply because of their birth date don't have access to the care they deserve. So the next part is when he finally came home to just outside of Toronto, Canada, where I'm from, and he was coming to terms with a lot of the functions that he'd lost or that had been damaged. But I want to point out that he was exactly the same person. It wasn't that as much as the way he was really feeling that people were perceiving him as somehow being less than what he was. Mm. And we could see this in all kinds of ways. And for my mom, too, who had gone at that point from his wife of 40 years to his primary caregiver. And it was as if they were fading into the mist of their own lives for no other reason, I think, than that sometimes people, even well-meaning people and good friends, they're just not sure what to do or they don't think they could do anything to help. So they walk away when maybe all the person needs, like we all need, is to have some social connectedness and interaction. So I started to see in my mind's eye a person, didn't look like my mom or dad, could be anybody, sitting all alone at the bottom of a well. And I still see that figure every morning when I wake up this 20 odd years later, that is sitting all alone at the bottom of a well. Nobody's there. They're outside of all circles of concern. And that's really what motivated me. The Center for Social Connectedness really didn't happen until, gosh, I think it was 2017. I mean, Mm -hmm. you get the papers for something and then you can go and make it. Mm -hmm. So I got the inspiration for that because I looked around and I thought there just wasn't an organization that was focusing on this journey from social isolation to social connectedness. And I felt, though, that a lot of people were doing this work from around the world. They just maybe didn't know they were doing this work, whereas you probably are very well aware that caregivers often don't get the credit that they deserve, and so that work isn't really recognized. So this has evolved up until today. The Center is still called the Center for Social Connectedness, But the work is really focused on building belonging, of which the social connectedness is one part, but it also has a few other components as well. So what are the other components of social belonging? Well, this is how I see it. It's certainly not written in stone. But I came up with this idea. They ended up to be four words starting with the letter P. It didn't start out like that. But I'll just go through them quickly. The first is people which is our connection to one another. We know that we are social creatures and that we need each other. And when you mentioned in your very kind introduction that I see belonging as a human right, I just want to mention that I see it as a birthright. 
not so much about making a new human right, but as a way to lift up a lot of neglected rights, and particularly, by the way, for older people, where the UN's been working for over a decade on a convention on the rights of older people and still doesn't have that. So the people part is that being connected to each other. And that's almost where social isolation and social connectedness most come in. But I go a bit further. I talk about our connection to place. I kind of gave you, I guess, a spoiler alert there about my love of being in nature or walking around in any new place I am without a plan. And I think about place, it can be this deep connection to the places that we call home. It can be a connection to family, loved ones. It can also be this connection in places where we don't come from, where we have to be new, which is always hard, and make new families. But it's the importance of connecting in place. The third one is purpose. And purpose is about having a sense of purpose. It doesn't have to mean you only get one life goal. (laughs) I don't think that's right. Or that you have to be, if you're in a business or something that you've got to aim to be the head of that business. I think it's about living a fulfilling life. And at some point or the other, being in service to others and have that kind of go in both directions so that somebody can be giving and receiving care at the same time. But living a purposeful life is important to me personally if I don't feel that I'm getting up in the workaday world and doing something, even if that's volunteering, it's giving my neighbor a helping hand, babysitting my granddaughter, whatever it is, then I feel a bit lost because I don't know what I did that day. And I work a bit too. And the last is power. And power, as I see it, is not having power over people, but about empowering people. And I would say what that's like. I know a bit about your work and your career. It's about using whatever platform and whatever gifts that we have, and we all have them, to see what we can do in terms of other people. And this can also mean when we're talking about grandmothers, for example, whether you have an actual grandchild, it's really about being an elder and bringing in your wisdom more than anything, that simply by listening and by giving considered wisdom that comes from that is also a great expression of one's power. I would like to add, Lindsay, that we mustn't forget the grandpas in all this. I was in South Africa last week doing a bunch of speaking and a book tour and enjoying getting to know this amazing country. Anyway, I was at an event one day with a lot of Go-Go's, which as you know, is grandmother. And there were a few men and they came over to me in kind of an organized way. Do not forget about us. <laughs> I love that. We have things to offer too, Kim. And I thought, yeah, no, that's really true. So I'm really into grandma magic, but I also want to just give a shout out that grandmas are pretty great as well. I attended a positive aging lunch last week uh-huh. and there were three grandfathers and like 12 older women. And they said, we know we're few in number, those of us that are trying to be more engaged and really participating in the grandparenting. We know we're few, but we're it's changing. It's changing. And I said, I know, I know. And it has been gendered that women take that caretaking role in a way that's maybe not natural, but it's so socialized that that's just that they've ended up playing. 
No, no, you're absolutely right about who takes the bulk of the caretaking role. But I'm also talking about the recipients of that care, too, and everyone's right, as I see it, and our responsibility that to them at any age to help people live meaningful lives and not feel isolated. You know, Kim, in this work, what I'm realizing a lot, because I'm doing some research for an intergenerational connection toolkit that we're building mm-hmm. with Ashoka. And in this work, what I feel like we sometimes do is like have this idea of a fictional past where we had belonging, where we were better at connection, where we were better at being with other generations, which I think we possibly were. But I wonder, was there a time when the human race did this belonging thing better? I think this is really perennial. I don't know that it goes back as far as when humans first inhabited the planet. And it may have more to do with historical factors, like what happened when we got language and people were divided. But what I do think is two things. One is that we're at the precipice now in a way we haven't been before as a species in terms of the size of our population on the planet and the many existential threats facing the planet. We just have to look at these climate disasters that are happening around the world with alarming complexity and alarming in the numbers. So I think it's that. The other is that when we look at the way we used to live, and I don't know where I would go to exactly in terms of a time, but you know, we didn't move around the world as much as we do now. And I think that makes it harder. There's a social scientist at the University of Oxford called Robin Dunbar. And he writes about what is, surprise, called the Dunbar number. And he says that traditionally, we were much better off living in communities of about 150 people. And I think it's very hard to do that right now, even if you can identify what your community is or your communities are, but I'm thinking really about geographically. So that's another challenge. But I will say that to me, all of this is a choice. It's a choice all the time as to what do we value. And if we say, for example, that we value people over economics, that we value community over having people working so far away from where they live, if we say that we value people of all age equally, then I think that's when we get into, so are we living up to that? You know, why is it that still the overwhelming proportion of any country's national budget, not to say there aren't good initiatives, is not going toward older people. And it's certainly not going toward intergenerational living, although there are some great examples. And it's not going to community. And for me, a real community, a community of belonging is where everybody is welcome and everybody has a gift to give. As you've done this work and built out this center, who's championing and getting on the belonging train, I guess? I don't know if that's the right (laughs) metaphor. And who's challenging you? Because I can hear business leaders or economists or people that are really in that space that think quantitatively and less qualitatively saying, well, you're just not being practical. We can't make that our focus. Well, I appreciate the question in terms of when you talk about business in the business world, I think that we're seeing a lot more 
initiatives, you know, DEI and now B for belonging. And I hope and I believe research shows that when people are considering where they're going to work, whether it's a hybrid or home or in an office, but who they're going to be with in terms of their work, they're going to be looking for these kinds of things and they'll start to count. In terms of the measurement, I'm not that worried about that. What you're talking about, the quantitative measures can be hard and some of those metrics can be hard. You're absolutely Right. But I believe that we're getting there even there. We also need to be able to look at things beyond or say as part of something like social connectedness or the four P's of belonging, then narrowly looking at it to, oh, does your country have a loneliness minister or something like the UK does? But rather to look at housing, look at how is social housing? What's the budget there? What about energy? Why is it that people that don't have a lot are usually living in the part of a city or town that will also have the worst problem with climate change or maybe don't have a library or maybe they live in the country and now the church is gone and the pub is gone and various chains come in that don't connect with that community. So when it comes to the qualitative, that's where I see a huge potential. And I also think it's the right way to do it because If you want to understand, for example, about grandmas and older people, ask them, you know, ask them what they need. I mean, last week, by way of example, when I was in South Africa and all over the country, I ended up in Cape Town and I met with a group of people that are older people and there's 127 in this community and they live in community, which is important, in houses together, but it's not just about where do they live, it's the their health care needs are met. Last two weeks ago in South Africa, there was a day where there was a giant computer glitch and people didn't get their check, for example, and they would take them there and advocate for them and so on. And so I wanted to mention that one, though, as an example, because the strongest opinions and advocacy and leadership is coming from the grandmas and grandpas coming from the older people themselves. And they could, you know, stand up and say exactly what they want and need. And then it's about support. And so I think the measures will get much better. But you know what I think is the even bigger problem, Lindsay, is what gets measured. When I was conducting interviews, many of them from my book, I I had a chance to speak with the chief statistician at Human Rights Watch. They do a lot of research. And I was asking him at that time for some really good data about forced migrants around the world, asylum seekers, refugees, forced migrants. And he said, we don't really have it. And I said, wait a minute, if you don't have it, I mean, who has it? And he said, well, we have some of it, but you know, Kim, think about this for a minute. This is how he put it to me. And he said, Kim, who decides what gets researched? And I was with a couple of my students at the time. It was one of them who had the answer before I did, <laughs> and that's okay. And she said, people in power. And I thought, yeah, people in power decide what gets research. Well, until we can have better research and better funding for the research where we need it, it's going to be hard to come up with better metrics. Right. There's a really great book about Africa actually called Poor Numbers, which is about census data across Africa and who pays for it to be collected and what it has meant for how development funds and other things reach African countries. It is Mm. fascinating to watch how 
kind of this tyranny of numbers ends up diverting us from the things that really matter, which is to get money to communities and place and housing and those kinds of spaces. I've just noted that down. So thanks for the recommendation. But it also sounds like what I've just gone over lightly, they've got that. They could really make that case. So that's really good. Yeah. If you're doing research in Africa and you can't find census data or you can't find the right numbers, which of course is always the case, then you just quote poor numbers (laughs) and move on. You're stuck until the people put money where it needs to go. It's so interesting you bring up South Africa. It's probably the only, well, no, a couple other Southern African countries that the elderly are getting pensions. And that is basically unheard of in any other African state. And that probably plays a role in the role that they can play. And that is really important and good. We also have to be mindful, I think, of what happens when there's an elderly person, an older person, for whom that check that they get is all the money that the family that they live with in an extended family is living on. And something actually that I really got tuned in on last week while I was there, that can lead to real tensions in the family. So I think it is really good and really important. I think that we also need to just round that circle of care to make sure that that's for them and that it's up to them what happens with that money. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So in your work, thinking about belonging, can you speak to the specific role of grandmothers? And I think we've touched on it a little, but what are some practical ways that you see that they can play in this birthright? Well, grandmothers represent warmth and caring, compassion, feelings of belonging and safety, and love. And I think that our world today can use grandmother power wherever it is. I also see that grandmothers wisely don't always tell us what to do, and that's good too. They're patient listeners, and I think that patient listening and, you know, deep listening, really hearing a person, let them think something out in front of you, with you, whether they're your grandmother, a grandmother, or playing this role in, for example, with the friendship bench, which you probably talked about before. So it's Mm -hmm. the the grandmothers, the go-go's that are on the bench starting in Zimbabwe, as you know, and now it's a model that can go anywhere and is. Mm -hmm. And it's the issue of being able to be trained and to do a certain amount of sessions, take the stigma away. And as the founder of Friendship, bench. Dixon Shabanda says, why grandmothers? He said, because they're not prescriptive. (laughs) But I also want to say and give a big shout out to what you're doing and Jennifer Hanks-Alaire is doing and all of the thousands of grandmothers that you're linking up together as part of your move, this movement around the world is that I think that it also highlights the importance of the grandmothers to bring their own leadership, Mm -hmm. to be seen as leaders, and to be able to sometimes, I guess, from really any corner to be able to not only be providing this kind of care that maybe we used to take for granted, and now we don't, but to be able to advocate as to what they need themselves on behalf of older people, men and women, and to be able to stand up as a group that isn't just cared for or can provide those things that I mentioned, which are really important, but also 
to be seen as part of absolutely part of and critical to the solution because we see in a lot of countries in the world our societies are aging and i hate the way this word burden is written up how do we make older people not a burden in society and i think that is such the wrong way to look at it if they've been made to be a burden then something has gone terribly wrong with our organizational systems and structures which is probably the truth anyway so it's about looking at them as assets as great assets for all of society but also let's return some of that love and compassion and we see as i mentioned i was in south africa last week so it's all kind of top of mind but there's a lot of grandmothers in the way the beautiful way that you define them is that they're seen as only recipients of care mm-hmm. and not as pillars of community and i would love it if we could turn that around right well you're speaking to the choir on that one but I would say in this work, the thing that I think that I didn't know before I started was, you know, I actually come from a youth background. I worked with youth for a couple decades and youth in Africa specifically would say, I feel so invisible. No one wants my opinion. They don't want me to lead. It's almost like I see a parallel with older women as well and older people as well that they feel like they've been put out to pasture, that they can't keep up with technology, so people are ignoring them. They're just feeling really pushed out, and therefore that's leading to this isolation. None of it makes sense to me. It didn't make sense when youth were being pushed out because of their energy and ideas and freshness and all of the things that they could bring to challenges, and it's the same on the other end. Again, we're preaching to the choir. I'm loving this conversation for many reasons. But in terms of numbers, metrics, those are the most socially isolated groups are the youth and older people. You raised something really interesting just now when you said about they're both getting pushed out. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, and who's doing the pushing out? Because that comes from not valuing people. And I look at just youth also, for sure. And really all ways of looking at a population demographic is just one. But to think, what happens when a young person feels pushed out, not heard, not counted? Well, if you come back to something like belonging, which I always come back to, as you can imagine, you know, we got to get it somewhere. This whole, I don't know if you took this in high school, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, probably, right? And belongingness is in there. It's not number one, but it's in there in the pyramid. And I talk about it not just as a need, but as a birthright that we all have, all of us, by simple virtue of the fact that we were born. But if we don't get our belonging in the, in I'm going to say mainstream, but if you could kind of keep that in quotation marks, because that could mean different things to everyone, then we're going to get it somewhere else. And when I call something the shadow, I call it the shadow side of belonging, which is really denied belonging, which is what happens, for example, when you see young people who don't feel like they fit in or they're not listened to and to the point that they feel and maybe quite rightly so that they're being bullied and maybe they're a newcomer to a country and they're really having a really hard time and they're just ripe for the kinds of recruitment that can come along like child soldiers or violent extremism and so on. So if you're not going to support people to have their belonging where you are, where they have a right to it, they'll go find it somewhere else. But it just occurred to me, 
also as we're speaking, that when it comes to grandmothers, for example, it's almost a little bit, this is just me chatting research, but it's different, right? Because there, what we're working hard to do is that they may be right there in society, not going over to the shadow side, which by the way, any one of us, including you and me, could do any day and come back. It's just a matter of when do we come back? But they're almost being disregarded. Like my dad's experience, 65, man, you're out. You do not matter. 2018, I went to Japan to research for my book. And one of the main things that I wanted to research, as you could imagine, was older people in Japan. And is it really all about respecting your elders? And we hear that a lot in the global South. There's way more of those traditions. The thing is that it doesn't necessarily mean that people's rights are being respected. But I did go to this magical place, one of the world's blue zones, where, as you know, Lindsay, many more people live to be centenarians, 100 plus, than elsewhere. And they're around the world. But this one was in Japan, and it's called Ogimi Village, O-G-I-M-I. You probably know about it anyway. And it was remarkable. And it's in the southernmost tip of Okinawa and the southernmost tip of Japan. And one of the things that you can imagine that I knew and read about, thanks to all the amazing research from Blue Zones, is that there's certain factors that tend to account for these different areas of the world, having people that not just live to this age, I should point out, but thrive, very important. And it's what you eat and it's exercising and it's social connection and community. And I would add in place because where this one is, is this beautiful, natural oasis. But the biggest thing, and this is what I wanted to say, is that I hadn't understood, comes back to why it's best if you can to go to the place, is that this is about older people, again, because we still tend to outlive the men, (laughs) there's more go-go's, but they take care of each other. So if somebody misses an activity one day, very active bunch, then then people will go to their house right away and see, are you okay? And all of that. And they just take the initiative. Whereas in Tokyo, not because it's Tokyo, although it is a huge major city, I got sadly to learn about what's called lonely deaths. Mm-hmm. And lonely deaths are where if somebody dies, it's at least a week until somebody finds them because no one goes. And that was happening a lot to older people. So I think it's really important to talk about how to keep supporting the resilience of people as they age and to listen to them when they say what they need. I'm all for intergenerational, but there is something about people who are in the same kind of point of life and get what each other needs and that they are able to do something about that. Wow. Well, Kim, we have exhausted (laughs) all topics. Just kidding. No, barely scratched the surface. But you're a grandmother. So to close out, do you want to say something about the experience that that has brought to you or what that has meant to you? I am the grandmother of a almost two and a half year old. You know, when you still count in half a year, quarter of a year, or even a day, little girl called Charlotte. And here it is. Some of my friends had already become grandmothers before I did. So I knew how great it would be, but it's 10 times greater than that or a hundred times. First of all, as all of us grandparents say, or whether or not that's your actual biological 
grandchild or not. It's like my granddaughter, my grandson. And I think that's really important because it's also about absolute unconditional love. But it's the intergenerational bond. Of course, I love my daughter, my son-in-law, but to see your own child become a mom is pretty incredible too. But it sounds funny that I sound like, oh, I wasn't expecting this because I talk about and really believe in all these intergenerational bonds, relationships, and so on. But this is so different when it actually happens to you. And there's things that I see with Charlotte, and it reminds me of my mom, who's passed on her relationship with my daughter, Caitlin, and her cousins. And it was so special. And then I remember my relationship in particular with my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom, and the kinds of things that I could share with her. Oh, and I'm grandma. (laughs) My mom was grandma. And my grandmother was grandma. So I had to be grandma, even though it took her a while to learn it. Every day, it's like the biggest blessing. You know, I'm someone's grandma. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Great. Well... Kim, it was so delightful to connect with you today. I learned a lot. Lindsay, so did I. This has been a total pleasure. I really look forward to meeting you in person and continuing and see the Grandmother Collective go from strength to strength to strength and the Grandma Magic podcast. I feel very honored to get to be part of it. Well, thank you so much.